0: 127 of the truth quest podcast the truth about walter e williams before we get started i want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show if you're on social media and topics such as big tech censorship intellectual dishonesty political bias the pennsylvania vote count or the 10th amendment comes up please share the topic specific truth quest episode with your debate partner episodes are available on a host of platforms including itunes google play music stitcher spotify podbean bit shoot brighteon think spot, and rumble if you are listening to this on the apple podcast app please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page all donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through facebook advertising see this episode show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for details And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Last week, a great American died, Walter E. Williams. According to Williams, the E stood for excellence. He was a long-standing economics professor at George Mason University, some 40-plus years. He held a B.A. from Cal State, an M.A. and a Ph.D. in economics from UCLA. He was also a nationally syndicated columnist with articles and essays appearing in over 100 publications. He authored a bunch of books, including The State Against Blacks, later made into a PBS documentary entitled Good Intentions, and an autobiography called Up From the Projects. His greatest passion was being a teacher, which translated to being a very effective public speaker and communicator. I first heard of Williams when he was a fill-in host for Rush Limbaugh years ago. You could tell he was not a radio guy by his presentation, but the words that came out of his mouth were so full of wisdom and logic that I was immediately drawn to him. He always seemed to have a good time. He seemed to have a great sense of humor, especially when he would talk about his wife, Connie, who died in 2007. They were together for 50 years, married for 47. He called her a civilizing force in his life. Anyways, he would make hilarious, gently sexist remarks about Mrs. Williams, which I always imagined was an inside joke between the two of them, made in front of a national audience. And after researching for this episode and learning about her influence in his life, My instinct proved to be correct. One of the things I always enjoyed about his presentation of information on Rush's show was he had this habit of presenting the other side of the argument. He was presenting by saying, Well, Williams, you say XYZ, but what do you say about ABC? And then he would go on to pose the counterpoint to his point. I have read many of his columns over the years and watched countless videos of his media appearances and speeches. He brought economic lessons to life in a way few others could. He was a master at communicating complex economic ideas to the public. Williams and people like him inspired me to launch this podcast. Folks who speak the truth regardless of the potential backlash from the usual suspects, malcontents, partisan hacks, the ignorant, and in the case of Williams, race hustlers. If there was one thing I learned from Williams besides all the common sense economic wisdom, it was, you must pursue truth for its own sake and muster the courage to speak it. Let's see what others said about Williams. I read a bunch of tributes to Williams in preparation for this episode. Here are a few that I think capture the essence of the man. Walter was a great communicator of ideas and a prolific, provocative, and uncompromising writer with a happy warrior demeanor. Leonard Reed described him as steadfast. He said, He embraced freedom and free markets and never wavered in preaching its gospel, so to speak. He was a man of solid conviction, of unmovable passions and what he knew was right. Thomas Sowell described him as his best friend. He said Williams' book Race and Economics is a must-read introduction to the subject. Most of what others say about high prices in low-income neighborhoods today has not yet caught up with what Williams said in his doctoral dissertation decades ago. A professor of economics at George Mason University said Williams' research was rigorous and he was one of the few economists who know how to engage with the public. He was one of America's most courageous defenders of free markets, constitutionally limited government, and individual responsibility. I will miss him as a friend. The world will miss him as a tireless champion of American values. He also said in another publication, I read, quote, A one-time cab driver who grew up poor in Philadelphia. Walter knew injustice and understood the way to fight it wasn't by emoting, but by probing and learning, end quote. Daniel Mitchell said Walter was a take-no-prisoners troublemaker who got in trouble as a young man, everything from arrests to a court-martial, because he refused to tolerate racism. Another colleague at George Mason said, quote, Walter did not seek confrontation for the sake of confrontation, nor did he run away from it. He sought truth in the human condition aided by the rigorous logic of economic reasoning and the discipline of the scientific method, end quote. And finally, this from a student of his at George Mason University. He said, quote, "He was impatient with nonsense, but he was never impatient with the process of learning. The number of students who benefited from his genius are too many to count. Many of them are now teachers themselves, passing on Williams's teaching to the even more minds." End quote. In Walter's early years, his father was not around. He basically abandoned the family when Williams was a young boy. He grew up in a new public housing project in Philadelphia. He often noted that he was one of the only kids in the neighborhood with a single-parent household. He was the first in his family to graduate from high school, and college for that matter. It is notable, given some of the stuff we will talk about later, that his grandmother was the daughter of slaves. Finally, he described the values he was taught growing up were hard work, sacrifice, and respect. He attributes those teachings to his mother and his stepfather, Pop. In 1959, he was drafted by the military, serving as a private in the U.S. Army. Of his experience, he said, quote, My labor services were confiscated by the United States government. And he said, being in the Army is a million-dollar experience that you wouldn't take a million dollars to do it again. He caused a lot of trouble while he was on base. Both the black and white soldiers disliked him for the same reason. He was too outspoken. In his autobiography, Up from the Projects, he wrote, We had been told to fill out forms that contained vital personal information such as blood type, race, religion, next of kin, etc., I had checked off Caucasian. A warrant officer told me I had made a mistake. He wanted to know why I said Caucasian when I was actually a Negro. I'm not stupid, I replied. If I checked off Negro, I'd get the worst job over here. Williams became a court reporter while in the military, which just so happened to be very helpful when he got court-martialed for some trumped-up charge of failing to obey a direct command. He used all the military law he had learned and got the charges dropped while serving as his own defense counsel. Knowing that he was probably going to file charges against his commanding officer, who trumped up the charges, they sent him to Korea. Before he left, he married Connie. While in Korea, he continued to raise hell, writing letters to superior officers and the media recounting the racial discrimination. One of his letters got picked up by the Philadelphia Independent. It was a front-page story. When challenged by his superiors about his motives, he simply pointed to his oath support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. He then pointed out that you, sir, are an example of someone domestic who is infringing on the rights declared in that document. He even wrote a letter to President Kennedy asking him, quote, should Negroes be relieved of their service obligations or continue defending and dying for empty promises of freedom and equality? Or should we demand human rights as our founding fathers did at the risk of being called extremists? End quote. Some assistant to the assistant of the assistant sent him a letter back suggesting that he request hardship release. Two years later, he got an honorable discharge. After hearing about William's military career, you will likely not be surprised to know that he was a self-described radical and tough guy. An example of his radical streak was his preference for Malcolm X versus Martin Luther King Jr.'s approach to addressing racial discrimination. At the time, he believed that violence was more effective than we shall overcome. One example of Williams' tough guy status is, number one, the fact that he held a black belt in karate, and number two, a particular incident several decades ago when three men jumped him. Two of them ended up in the hospital. After the military, Williams drove a taxi to make ends meet and pay for his two night classes at Temple University. Then he and Connie moved to California so he could enroll as a full-time student at Cal State Los Angeles. That was around 1968. He started pursuing a sociology degree until he read W.E.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction, where he argued that blacks will not achieve any salvation until they understand economics. So he changed his major. He then enrolled in UCLA's master's program in economics. After getting his master's, he landed a teaching gig at Los Angeles City College. Then he took a full-time gig back at Cal State in their economics department. In 1973, he moved back to Philadelphia to teach economics at Temple University. Controversy ensued again. Black students demanded a black economics course. Walter argued to the administrators that if Irish students demanded their own course, you would throw them out of your office, but because of your white guilt, you actually listened to this nonsense from blacks. Then he wrote a memo to the administration charging his colleagues of fraudulent grades. He argued that white faculty are giving blacks higher grades than they deserve. Does this guy have the balls the size of Florida or what? The Philadelphia Inquirer picked up this story and interviewed Williams. In 1975, he accepted a fellowship at Stanford University. So back to California he went with Connie and their newly born daughter, Devin, in tow. A few years later, in 1982, he published his pioneering book, The State Against Blacks. The book is described as a data-rich broadside against occupational licensing, taxicab regulations, labor union privileges, and other fine-sounding government measures that inflict disproportionate harm on blacks by restricting the employment options and by driving up the cost of goods and services. He argued that the major cause of black unemployment is government intervention in the labor markets. Quote, it is morally outrageous for government to be cutting off the ambitions of those trying to climb the middle rungs of the economic ladder, end quote. Throughout his life, Williams was a tell-it-like-it-is kind of guy. His daughter summed up his philosophy this way, Sometimes you have to stand up, even if it means standing alone. He stated the welfare state did more harm to the black community and the black family than slavery and Jim Crow. He was on the Phil Donahue show in 1981 explaining this very concept to Phil, who sarcastically said, so welfare payments cause illegitimate children? Williams looked looked him in the eye and said, no, sexual intercourse causes that. He argued that if you start with self-ownership, then making moral judgments is easy. He explained that we know slavery, rape, and murder are immoral because they violate property rights, namely the right to yourself, i.e. self-ownership. He coined the phrase spiritual poverty to help explain the plight of some poor black communities. He argued that we are not so much talking about poverty of the pocketbook, but poverty of the spirit, evidenced by, quote, pathological behavior, such as high rates of single-parent households, low aspirations, or the fact that 70-plus percent of black children are born out of wedlock, and pointing out that back in 1940, that rate was around 13%. What did Williams have to say about slavery? Well, here's an excerpt from his autobiography at the leftist reception the questioner asked how do you feel about the enslavement of your ancestors they were all shocked at my response he said i started off by saying that slavery is one of the most despicable abuses of human rights but i went further to tell them that i walter e williams have benefited enormously from the horrible suffering of my ancestors my wealth and personal liberties are greater having been born in the united states than any african country he also said quote the moral tragedy that has befallen americans is our belief that it is okay for government to forcibly use one American to serve the purposes of another. That, in my book, is the working definition of slavery." And here's one of my favorite quotes by Williams. The job of tyrants and busybodies is never done. When they accomplish one goal, they move their agenda to something else. If we Americans give them an inch, they'll take a yard. So I say, don't give them an inch in the first place. The hate America types use every tool at their disposal to achieve their agenda of discrediting and demeaning our history. Our history of slavery is simply a convenient tool to further their cause. End quote. Well, what did he have to say about slavery reparations? Well, he claimed that he never hears leftists who call for reparations calling for the African kings and the Arab slave merchants to pay up. They were the ones who brought the slaves to the Americas. What about state secession? Walter's office had a framed picture of his daughter and a Confederate flag. When a visitor asked why a black man like himself had a Confederate flag in his office, he said it was to give him the opportunity to explain the virtues of secession to whoever asked about it. He would then rightly point out that this constitution would never have been ratified if states thought they would have been forced to remain in the Union. He reminded his readers and audiences that each state was a sovereign nation. It was a voluntary association between 13 states. If you're interested in the topic of state secession, check out episodes 87, 88, and 110. When asked about the election of Obama and his impact on the black community, Williams said, quote, I don't see lower crime rates or higher high school graduation rates, end quote. During one interview, he was asked about blacks gaining progress through the political process. He said, quote, if you ask the question, in what cities do blacks suffer the highest crime victimization rates, the rottenest schools, the very, very poor living conditions? They are in the very cities where a black is the mayor, a black is the police chief, a black is the superintendent of schools. And while not suggesting a causal relationship, he continued, quote, If political power meant so much, you would expect living conditions to be wonderful. Look at the Chinese and Japanese. They don't have any political power, but by any measure, they are a socioeconomic success. He then shifted to the Irish, who he contended had vast political power at one point, yet they are the slowest developed of European ethnic groups. His conclusion is political power does not equate to economic power or ethnic or racial progress. When asked a follow-up question, quote, so how do you achieve economic power? He responded, acquire skills and training. Williams had a lot to say about discrimination, as you can only imagine. He argued that there is no problem with private individuals and private companies discriminating. But government cannot, because taxpayers are paying the bills. State-sponsored discrimination should not be tolerated and should not, and should be done away with by any means necessary, including disobeying the law. He went on to explain by posing a question, why do you think laws are there to begin with? His answer, they are there because people would normally not engage in that behavior. He used the example of laws forcing blacks to sit in the back of the bus or the trolley cars. The companies who ran those businesses, he argued, back then would not have enforced such a rule on their own, so the powers that be wrote a law. He makes the argument that because we have freedom of association, quote, discrimination is just an act of choice. We all discriminate. People have the right to associate with whomever they want, end quote. One of his favorite lines was when he was looking for a wife, he did not give every woman an equal opportunity. "...I discriminated against Japanese women, Italian women, women with criminal records, and women who did not bathe regularly." In his autobiography, he wrote, "...my fellow students were in awe of someone who would challenge Professors Alkian and Hershiver, as I did. One notable challenge occurred when one of the professors said to me in class, "...Williams, I bet you're against discrimination." I replied, "...that no, I favor discrimination." Smiling, he asked whether that included racial discrimination." I answered, yes, I practiced it a lot when I was dating. In a 1978 article for Reason titled The New Jim Crow Laws, he wrote, Society is coming to view the difficulty that today's minorities face in entering the mainstream of society as a manifestation of group incompetence. Hardly anyone acknowledges that many, if not most, of the problems encountered are due neither to group nor to individual incompetence, but rather are due to the excesses of governments dominated by politically powerful interest groups. He explained eliminating discrimination is not necessary to acquire economic advancement. He often used the NBA to demonstrate his point. At one point, there were no blacks in the professional basketball. Today, 80% of the league is black. Why is that? Superior skills, he argues. There's no affirmative action, no lawsuits. Think about Jackie Robinson, he would argue. The Dodgers could no longer ignore the vast pool of talent in the Negro Leagues. One owner, in essence, broke the cartel and grabbed Jackie. Then the dam broke and every other team had to do the same or fall behind. What about the Civil Rights Act? He said, quote, I think the Civil Rights Act was a major error. The only thing that was necessary was a statement that says the United States Constitution applies equally to all citizens in the country. What about minimum wage laws? While at Stanford, he was commissioned to conduct a study on minimum wage, which he concluded discriminated or punished teenagers, particularly minority teenagers. He often made the point that if liberals are right, that raising the minimum wage will fix all ills, then they should tell the people of Bangladesh and Haiti to raise the minimum wage, and voila, everything will be fixed. This is where his more public persona took off. Congressional testimony about taxation, welfare, labor laws, and regulations started coming in. He would often argue with congressmen during testimony because he did not respect them. What about social justice? Quote, my definition of social justice is, I keep what I earn and you keep what you earn. Do you disagree? If so, how much of what I earn belongs to you and why? Along the same lines, he once said, quote, if one person has a right to something he did not earn... Of necessity, it requires that another person not have the right to something that he did earn, end quote. When observing dilapidated and abandoned housing in New York and other cities, Walter blamed rent control, which dampens landlords' incentive to maintain their properties and even creates an incentive to destroy them and collect insurance proceeds. Quote, short of aerial saturation bombing, rent control might be one of the most effective means of destroying a city, end quote. What about racism and affirmative action? Williams was fond of saying, quote, I'm very, very happy that I got virtually all of my education before it became fashionable for white people to like black people. So what that meant is, when I got a C, it was an honest-to-God C, and when I got an A, it was an honest-to-God A. They weren't practicing affirmative action, and they didn't give a damn about my self-esteem. He also said racial preferences or affirmative action is one of the most effective means of reinforcing racial stereotypes. And finally, he said... Racial discrimination and racism in our country could have earned a well-deserved death, but it has been resurrected by race hustlers, or poverty pimps as I call them, such as Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, and many others in the civil rights movements who make a living on the grievances of blacks. Thomas DiLorenza, a good friend of his, told the following story. In the early 80s, the George Mason administration announced that every academic department was to have an affirmative action officer. Naturally, we chose Walter. His job was to report to the administration once a year on how good a job the department had done in recruiting women and minority faculty. In his first year with that assignment, Walter informed the administration, and he's paraphrasing here, quote, we tried to hire a tall, statuesque blonde from UCLA, which was a true story. But the administration was too cheap to give us enough salary money to compete for her services. Here's an excerpt from his autobiography that demonstrates his consistency on this issue. Being among the very few blacks in Chevy Chase, Maryland, taught me a lesson about racial relationships. Living in a corner house prompted a Saturday chore of picking up trash that people discarded from passing cars. One Saturday while doing that, an elderly white neighbor approached me and asked whether, when I completed my task, I would be interested in working that afternoon in his yard. I told him very nicely that I would be spending the afternoon putting the final touches on my Ph.D. dissertation. The man's face turned red with embarrassment, and he apologized profusely. Some blacks might have been insulted and charged the man with racism, but I realized that the man was a pacyan, which, I had to look this up, simply means looking at the probabilities of something. Thanks, Walter, for adding to my vocabulary. Anyways, back to the quote. But I realized the man was a pacyan, meaning if a black person was spotted in Chevy Chase picking up trash, the overwhelming probability was that he was a worker as opposed to a homeowner. Playing racial odds doesn't make one a racist. Williams argued over and over again that too much attention was put on slavery and past oppression, with little or no effort or thought being actually addressed the problems of today. If you really want to know what Walter Williams thought, you got to go to his website and download this PDF that he has up there called The Proclamation of Amnesty and Pardon, which is his pardon of all persons of European descent. Let me read it to you. Whereas Europeans kept my forebears in bondage some three centuries toiling without pay, whereas Europeans ignored the human rights pledges of the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution, whereas the Emancipation Proclamation, the 13th and 14th Amendments, meant little more than empty words, therefore Americans of European ancestry are guilty of great crimes against my ancestors. But in recognition, Europeans themselves have been victims of various sundry human rights violations, to wit, the Norman Conquest, the Irish Potato Famine, decline of the Habsburg Dynasty, Napoleonic and Sarsus adventurism, and gracious insults and speculation about the intelligence of Europeans and Polish descent. I, Walter E. Williams, do declare full and general amnesty and pardon to all persons of European ancestry, for both their own grievances and those of their forebears against my people. Therefore, from this day forward, Americans of European ancestry can stand straight and proud, knowing they are without guilt and thus obliged not to act like damn fools in their relationship with Americans of African ancestry. And he signs it, Walter E. Williams, gracious and generous grantor. Williams was a stout defender of free markets and capitalism, He argued that greed is indeed good. He explained it this way. Because as you work to line your pockets, you must perform a service that others find valuable enough to pay you for it. Texas cattle ranchers get up at the crack of dawn, taking care of and slaughtering their herd for meat. Idaho potato farmers get up at the crack of dawn, caring for their crop. Both of them do this for what? Profits. Greed. For the benefit of others. He goes on to point out that government programs are non-profit. They don't give a shit about you. Profit-seeking people do care about you. In a PragerU video entitled, Is Capitalism Moral?, Williams argued absolutely capitalism is moral. He argued that the free market is comprised of voluntary actions between individuals with no coercion. If I want something from you, I have to do something for you. You mow someone's lawn and get 20 bucks. You take the $20 to the grocery store and you want to buy some meat, which was provided by a bunch of people from the ranchers and butchers and truck drivers and logistics companies. The butcher says to you, what have you done to help your fellow man, proving you deserve this meat? You show him the $20 bill. Think of it as a certificate of performance or proof that you served your fellow man. Williams goes on to explain in the video that free markets are a positive sum game. You do something good for me, give me the meat, and I will do something good for you, give you $20. Everyone is better off because they got what they valued most. Whereas government-coerced redistribution is, at best, a zero-sum game, taxpayers, either current or future, lose, and the recipient of bailouts, welfare, and subsidies win. Think about the auto industry bailout in 2009. They should have gone bankrupt, sold their equipment to someone who would do a better job. Instead, they receive a government bailout. They win, we lose. Forget customers and stockholders. Their business model sucks, but they got propped up. He goes on to say, quote, People who denounce the free market and voluntary exchange are for control and coercion. And he said the free market only works with limited government because the people then decide which businesses survive, not government. What about charity? Williams argued that giving on your own is praiseworthy and laudable taking from someone else and giving to someone else is despicable and worthy of condemnation. Quote, No matter how worthy the cause, it's robbery, theft, and injustice to confiscate the property of one person and give it to another to whom it does not belong. End quote. He also said, quote, Thou shalt not steal does not mean thou shalt not steal unless you are a majority in the United States Congress. What else did he think about government in general? Here are a few of my favorite quotes. The essence of government is force, and most often that force is used to accomplish evil ends. He also argued, Nothing in the Constitution suggests that government is a grantor of rights. Instead, government is a protector of rights. No fan of big government, Williams explained that government does stuff that if private citizens did, they would go to jail. He said, We don't have a natural right to take property from one person and give it to another. Therefore, you cannot legitimately delegate such authority to government. He also said, government is about coercion. Limiting government is the single most important instrument for guaranteeing liberty. And the last quote about government is, government has no resources of its own. Government spending is no less than the confiscation of one person's property to give it to another to whom it does not belong. And I want to end this episode with a few quotes from Walter on the topic of politicians and the economy. Quote, politicians have immense power to do harm to the economy but they have very little power to do good. He also said, the best good thing that politicians can do for the economy is to stop doing bad. In part, this can be achieved through reducing taxes and economic regulation and staying out of our lives. He also said, if we care about our remaining liberties, we must at some point let politicians and bureaucrats know we will not tolerate further encroachment of our God-given rights to liberty. Two more quotes. most of the great Problems we face are caused by politicians creating solutions to problems they created in the first place. Amen to that, Walter. And finally, always be suspicious of those who claim their way is the best way and are willing to force their way on the rest of us. Rest in peace, Walter E. Williams. Thank you for imparting so much wisdom and common sense on the rest of us for so long. Thank you for setting an example, for standing up for the truth, regardless of the backlash you may receive from those who oppose your viewpoint. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.